He's the perfect image bearer, so we need to start being more like him. This is why our doctrine of union with Christ is so important in Paul's letters, because the more that you understand your union with Christ, the more it affects your relationship with the Father, the more you start to image him successfully. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to the sixth and concluding part of Disillusioned, Distracted, and Discontent from Pastor Paul Twiss. In prior series segments, Pastor Paul took us through nine issues that characterized our culture, ranging from consumerism to, quote, living only in the now. Christians, says Pastor Paul, have every reason to resist this thinking and behavior. Pastor has shifted his thoughts to the antidote for these issues to which Christians must avail themselves to think deeply and act upon God's ultimate job description for us. From Genesis chapter 1, quote, Let us make man in our image to have dominion over the earth. Here's part six of Disillusioned, Distracted, and Discontent. If you know anything about British soccer, you'll know that once every four years, England proclaims with pride, we are going to win the World Cup this year. Once every four years, without fail, the nation says, this is our year, contrary to all evidence. (laughs) We have won the competition once in its history. We invented the game. We have won it once. Every single person in the UK knows the year 1966, because that's the year we won the Soccer World Cup. So we don't have a good history in the tournament. Secondly, if you look at the names on the piece of paper, we don't have the best team in the world. Contrary to all evidence, every four years we say, we're going to (laughs) win. If we're to analyze that strange behavior, what would we do? We would take a strata of society in the UK and we would analyze their behavioral habits and their perspective and so on and so forth. And we might come up with some findings. If we seek a path of synthesis and we zoom out and say, How is this attitude connected to other things? One discovery we might come upon is the fact that many, many, many years ago, this tiny island, because of its navy and because of the fact that naval power at the time was everything, this tiny island had an empire that stretched the globe, an empire so vast that the sun never set upon it. And so profound and and formative was that one reality in this nation's mindset that even up until today, the common people have an attitude of, we will win. We will win. So much has our history affected us. In the same way, have you ever wondered why the French people regularly riot? Have you ever wondered? You see it on the news fairly regularly. Riots. I'm talking once every 10 years or so. Riots in the street of Paris. Do you ever sit there and ask a question and say, why does this nation keep doing this? And the answer doesn't come by way of analysis, because analysis would suggest they have particular issues that are unique to them and other nations don't share. And that's, that's not true. They don't have any unique issues that other nations aren't going through. The answer comes by way of synthesis, by zooming out and understanding that this is a nation whose history is founded upon rioting. 
that they were an aristocracy, which meant there were two tiers, the very, very rich and the very, very poor, and that was it. And that, that could only last for so long. And then in 1789, there was the storming of the Bastille, and so formative was that one event in its history that there now are people who are prone to do this. That's not a criticism of them. That's just an observation. And those answers and that appreciation for why things are the way they are comes by way of synthesis, not purely analysis. It needs to be a both and. So you're asking good questions has to involve, and again, this is a skill that you need to learn, synthesis in addition to analysis. When you learn how to ask good questions, then you'll be on the path towards a better appropriation of knowledge. When you better appropriate knowledge, whatever is your field, you are now equipped to better image God. But, you say, there's still something missing in this puzzle. We were talking about the unbeliever, can he image God? He's not a believer, but can he represent, can he appropriate knowledge correctly? To an extent, it is possible. Now, ultimately, his efforts are going to be flawed. Why? Because there is that missing piece of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. And this is where we now turn to the New Testament. We go all the way to Colossians and we see how Christ completes the picture. Paul is writing to this church in Colossae and he's thrilled with the ministry that's happening there, but there is a problem. And the problem is, as some have said, a misappropriation of knowledge. Uh, Specifically, we call it the Colossian heresy. We don't exactly know what it was, but in some way, it looks like a teaching that departed from a gospel of salvation by grace, invoked the Colossians to work, and therefore was distorting the gospel and distorting the person of Christ. So Paul writes to this church in Colossae, and he doesn't so much concern himself with the heresy, though he does tackle it uh, briefly. He's more concerned with setting forth a biblical picture of Jesus Christ. I say to the guys leaving seminary, if they're off to a church, first book to preach the Gospel of John, or Colossians. Probably the most Christocentric letters that we have in the New Testament, and you want to set forth, first and foremost, above all things in your ministry, a biblical picture of Jesus Christ. So what does Paul do? He doesn't present Christ in a general way, uh, nor does he present Christ or try to present Christ in all of his offices. What Paul does in the letters to Colossians is present Christ in a very particular way, and specifically theology that relates to Adam. Or to put it another way, Paul in Colossians presents Christ as the second Adam, the true and better Adam, who succeeded where the first Adam failed. He's the head of a new humanity. Now, look what he says, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So he's talking about the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed before, those verbs sound familiar. Those verbs are the verbs that are found all the way back in Genesis 1 when God gives Adam the mandate to bear fruit, to multiply, to fill the earth. Paul is making an intentional connection saying the gospel is doing that very thing. The gospel has picked up that mandate and is now running with it, which is abstract because originally it was given to a man and now we see the gospel doing it. Well, it's only abstract if you fail to understand that there's a man at the center of the gospel. Who is that man? Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus Christ? Verse 15. 
He is the image of God. Who is Jesus Christ? Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. Now take out the word invisible for one second. I'll get to it in just a minute. If that word invisible wasn't there, you wouldn't fail to see the connection. Paul is saying something about Jesus' humanity here. Jesus is the perfect image bearer. He represents God as a human being on earth perfectly. He has the word invisible to draw attention to the incarnational reality of Jesus. God the Father is invisible, but Jesus was incarnate in the flesh and we saw him. Nevertheless, he's alluding all the way back to that text we've been looking at in Genesis. Now you might say, well, well, how can he do that? And it's given in the next verse, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. That is, he's God. How can he be the perfect image bearer in his humanity? Because he's God. And look at the outworking of his image bearing. Verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. If there was chaos to begin with and God brought order, then Genesis 3 brought about chaos again. And how do we find a resolution to that chaos? It's through the cross. He reconciles all things to himself and he makes peace by the blood of the cross. Immediate implication. Your pursuit of Christ-likeness is not unrelated to your success as an image bearer. In fact, Paul makes this very application in the latter part of the letter. Look at chapter 3. He's into the ethical outworking of the gospel. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old man. Better translation than the ESV. ESV says old self. You've put off the old man. And many commentators say it seems to be that Paul is talking about Adam here. You've put him off with its practices or his practices. You've put on the new man, that is Christ, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The immediate outworking of understanding that Jesus Christ is the perfect image bearer is to understand that you need to strive towards Christ's likeness in order to be a better image bearer. You cannot successfully image bear ultimately if you're not also growing in Christ's likeness. And the logic is simple. Here's God who we need to represent. Here's the perfect image bearer. So we need to start being more like him. This is why our doctrine of union with Christ is so important in Paul's letters, because the more that you understand your union with Christ, the more it affects your relationship with the father, the more you start to image him successfully. Now think about last week. I said, authority is given way to preference. Well, immediately that's addressed when you understand that you have to submit to the words of Jesus Christ to image God. If Jesus says it, you must do it. In terms of striving towards Christ's likeness, there is very, very little room for preference. Jesus Christ is the authority, king of kings. The church needs to acknowledge that if we are to successfully bear God's image in society. But there's a problem. That's not the full picture. Historian David Bebbington wrote a book about evangelicalism. And he gave a definition of evangelicals in that book, which has become the standard definition. Everyone celebrated and said, he nailed it. This is what evangelicalism is. And in his definition, he observed four things. He says that the evangelicals appear to be characterized by a crucicentrism. It, it just means the cross is central. A crucicentrism. The cross is central to these people. Great. He says they're characterized by a biblicism. The Bible seems to be a major part of who they are. Great. He said 
they're characterized by a conversionism. That is, with a concern for a very marked and definite conversion from sin to Christ. All good. Number four, he says they're characterized by activism. And by that, he probably means something different to what you're thinking of. He means preaching, evangelism, discipleship. That comes under, for him, this title, activism. And it's right that the Christian faith is a very active one. It should be a very active one. Uh, you tell me, what is missing from Bebbington's definition of the evangelical? We can do it. What is it? Somebody say it really loud. Say church really loud. You got it. It's the church. That is not a criticism of Bebbington's definition. He's not looking at the Bible saying, what should they look like? He's looking at the evangelical community saying, what are they like? And he finds no cause to put the church in there. And that definition becomes the standard. It is a criticism of us. For the longest time, it has been noted that evangelicals do not have a proper, robust ecclesiology. Why is this? It's not hard to see. Because we live in such an individualistic time. We are so concerned with me, myself, and I that we have lost the corporate nature of the New Testament. Think about that great evangelical institution, the quiet time, which is essentially go and read your Bible by yourself, and it's fine. Think about when you read your Bible, how many times you render the imperatives of the New Testament on a purely individualistic level, neglecting to observe the fact that so often the author is actually saying, you corporately do this. You corporately be holy. Have you ever thought about how do I work these out at my Bible study? How can my fellowship group obey this imperative? Because that's the sense in which they're given. What we do is we behave like many, many islands trying to think through those imperatives only as they concern us as individuals. We have lost any sense of the corporate nature of the New Testament faith. Bebbington observed that, and that's a problem. Christ is no longer here. He ascended. He was in the flesh. He's not in the flesh. He's up high in the flesh on his throne. He's not with us. What that means is that the body of Christ starts to become the manifestation of his glory. We are to represent Christ to one another. So if all we're doing is seeking to conform ourselves to Christ apart from a biblical ecclesiology, then we're going to fail tragically in increasing in our ability to image God. Or let me put it in a more positive way. If you want to be a better image bearer, you have to be all about the church. You have to forge a serious commitment to the church in your life. If the doors are open, you're here. Not because it works for your schedule, not because you felt like it this morning or this evening, but because you understand the centrality of the church in your life as it relates to your job of being an image bearer. You have to be all about the church. You have to be committed to this place because it's God's instrument by which you're going to be conformed to Christ's likeness and that then in turn becomes the means by which you image God. Now, more than that, I think we can actually start to think through how do I conduct myself in the church? If that's true, then what should I be doing in the church? Because many ministries that go on here, where should I invest my efforts? What should I be doing? Think back to Genesis chapter 1. You're made as the image of God. Fill the earth. 
which in some way means behave so as to represent me with this knock-on effect so that it keeps going. That it doesn't stop with you, but it keeps going. I think there needs to be an emphasis in everyone's life on discipleship in both directions. As we think about the image of God, you have to be able to answer the question as a member of this church, who's influencing me and who am I influencing? And I'll often exchange the word discipleship for influence. That's what we're doing when we disciple. We seek to have an influence upon someone so that they look more like Christ at the end of it. Who are you influencing and who is influencing you? And I would push that even just a little bit further. I would say if you think about that knock-on effect of filling the earth with God's glory, there's not a whole lot of place for this form of discipleship which says, he's my disciple, only ever him, I've been meeting with him for the last 20 years, and nobody else has an influence in my life. I don't think that's altogether biblical. I think what we want is many influences and to be influencing many. I think there needs to be, a, again, a corporate nature to this. And I know that we're limited in our time and our resources, but at least a number of people who are speaking into your life, shaping and molding you to be more like Christ, and that you're doing the same with in order that we would all be better image bearers. I would actually push it a little bit further than that and say if we're truly looking to fill the earth, don't just gravitate towards the people that you like. Don't just hang out with the people that look like you. Don't just spend all your time with people that it's really easy to get on with. In fact, this leads me to the next observation from Colossians. Look at 1.24. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. Now, I want to be careful. Paul is speaking as an apostle. And when you examine Paul's life, what you see is there is a, an interesting correspondence between his life and the life of Christ. And there is a sense in the New Testament where Paul is treading out the path of Christ. And I think what he's saying here is not that Christ's death was lacking in any atoning work, any atoning significance, but rather it was lacking in its presentation. It didn't go to the ends of the earth. It was limited geographically. And Paul, on his missionary journeys, is filling up what was lacking. He's presenting the sufferings of Christ to new geographical areas. But isn't it interesting that he says, I'm filling up what is lacking? Because he has options, and a more sensible option might be to say, I'm completing that which was lacking. I am continuing that which was lacking. I am carrying on the work of Jesus Christ in his suffering. But he says, I'm filling up. And actually, what you see when you study Colossians is that the filling language is everywhere. Paul uses the filling language everywhere in Colossians. Why? Because he keeps tying the theology of Christ and the church all the way back to Adam and that mandate to fill the earth. What does that mean? One implication, and I, I do think there's cause for this, though Paul is speaking as an apostle, when he gets to the pastorals, he makes clear to Timothy the nature of suffering in the Christian life. One of the implications is to successfully image bear, we have to understand that ministry involves pain. Ministry involves suffering. It's knit into what ministry is this side of Eden. In fact, the connection's already been made all the way back in Genesis. God said to Adam and Eve, fill the earth and most definitely there, it means have more babies because no sin in them. So fill the earth with image bearers. And then in Genesis 3, the curse comes to Eve. There's going to be a lot of pain in your childbearing. So already we know that there's pain involved. And as it moves forward to the New Testament, and we're thinking more about now making disciples, the implication hasn't gone away. It involves hardship. 
And it's a little bit ironic that we talk about this because we don't suffer in the way that Paul suffered, nor in the way that many thousands of Christians are suffering the world over today. We are not persecuted for our faith. Is there a kind of suffering that we can endure for the gospel? Absolutely. And again, thinking back to last week, it is simply refusing to act according to preference. When you think about having an influence on people in the church, being influenced by people, you don't get to act according to preference. You don't simply gravitate towards the people that you click with. But you understand that you have a responsibility towards others. If they're a member of this church and you're a member of this church, you have a responsibility towards them. You simply showing up is the first step of exercising that responsibility. And then you seek to be the image of God to that person in order to more fully exercise that responsibility. Now, what's the end game? Last week I said we're overly invested in the present. The image of God provides a corrective to that. It means we understand where we've come from, we understand who we are, and we understand where we're going. Four times the biblical text looks forward and says that there is a day coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the end game. And that's what we're striving towards. And that provides an incentive for us to struggle on. Now, I haven't mentioned the word contentment at all this morning. And that was intentional. Why? The biblical teaching on contentment is simply this, that contentment is not dependent upon your circumstances. If you are taking notes, write that down and repeat it to yourself often. Your contentment is independent of your circumstances. However, it is dependent upon understanding who you are. If you don't understand who you are, you will quickly lose your contentment. If you understand who you are, if you have a biblical anthropology, if you know that you are an image bearer who has a job description to represent an eternal God, bringing order out of chaos, governing as you're able, having an influence, clinging on to Christ to be more like him, obeying all of his commands, making the church an absolute priority in your life, seeking to have influence over others and be influenced, understanding that there will be suffering along the way, then you will start to learn the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Let's pray now to close. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the privilege of being made as your image. According to your likeness, you saw fit to make us your representatives here on earth. That gives us a job description. That gives us a purpose. We're to image you. We're to communicate you. We're to represent you. And there's so much more to be said, but we do understand very simply that that means we have to be all about the church. We need to be pursuing Christ. We need to be seeking to exercise influence over others and be influenced to the glory of Christ. We need to be learning and correctly appropriating knowledge. Father, please help us to see life differently as image bearers. I pray you'd instruct our hearts concerning contentment. We will only be content when we understand who we are. Teach us who we are. Teach us the vital importance of pursuing a better representation of you. And teach us to embrace the truth that our contentment is independent of our circumstances. May we flourish May we abound to the praise and glory of Christ. May we be utterly content in his name. Amen.
You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul has returned several times to the caustic effects of discontentment. Hope has arrived. Over the centuries, the Genesis 1 words, made in his likeness, have given hope. We know this is no passive job description for us either, not by hearing pastor's words about it being active and people-focused. If you'd like to learn more about being made in the image of God and finding assurance of your salvation, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts for our audio archives, including this entire series. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Tomorrow we begin a new series with part one of Entering the Grace of God from Pastor Paul Twist. I hope you'll join us then. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.